Welcome to fucking Deadwood. Yeah, good to meet you. Very good luck to you. Had you vision as well as sight, you would recognize within me not only a man, but an institution and the future as well. Fuck you. Fuck the institution. And fuck the future. You cannot fuck the future, sir. The future fucks you. Carries a serious responsibility. Come on, baby. Show the man your power, baby. Blast him! Give him some of that tone! Showtime! I want you to smile and blow me a kiss for this one. 
Good evening, ladies and gentlemen of the radio audience. Very auspicious beginning. Sure, it's a talk show. You know, people phone in and make a beef. Oh, what about? Whatever happens to bug you, that's what you talk about. Sometimes he agrees with the caller, other times he sets him straight. Hey, it's me, Chris T, here with a brand new aerial view. This one all about Deadwood, one of my all-time favorite TV shows. It returns today, Friday, May 31st on HBO, Deadwood the Movie. And on this very special aerial view here on thehoundnyc.com, I've got an interview with the man who played Dan Doherty. On the program, someone I've known for a few years now, W. Earl Brown, joins me. And then stay with us after the W. Earl Brown interview. I've got a very special Deadwood montage for you. And one more reminder, The Hound returns on Sunday with the new Hound Howl at 3 p.m., 3 to 5, and then crashing the party from 5 to 7 p.m. This is TheHoundNYC.com. I'm Chris T. You're listening to Aerial View. And now my interview with W. Earl Brown. You may need to clean the wax out of your holes. Hello? Hey, Earl? Yes. It's uh, Chris T. How are you? Oh, hey, man. thought it said from Palm Springs. You live in Palm Springs? No. I have a Google Voice number that's in Palm Springs. Oh. <laughs> that's pretty good, right? <laughs> yeah. I thought, who the fuck's calling me from Palm Springs? I was just in Palm Springs, too. Well, we were Joshua. Um, two weekends ago. Yeah, that looked like a lot of fun. How was that? That was the Sacred Cowboys? Um, well, Cowboys played there about two months ago, maybe okay. three months ago. And that was my first time being there. And then my uh, daughter was coming home for Mother's Day. We were taking Carrie to see the Rolling Stones on Mother's Day. Well, then that all got postponed. So right. I suggested, hey, let's all go back out to Joshua Tree. So we spent the weekend there staying at the Joshua Tree Inn, then went in the park and all that. We tried to go back up to Pappy and Harriet's on Saturday, but the wait for a table was an hour and a buck and a half, so wow. we didn't stick around. You know, but, I've never been. I've, I've heard about that place for years. It's, it's legendary. Uh, oh, was, yeah. it every, was it everything you had heard it was going to be? And Yep. Yeah. I got to get out there yeah. one of these days. And it was a great crowd. For, I mean, we were playing. Pearl was the one who had booked it. Mm-hmm. And then she asked us to beat to open. Um, and I, I'd always heard of the place. And then when McCartney played there, you know, between the desert trip weekends, that was when really planted the seed. Like, I've got to go there someday. I got to go see that place. Well, when Pearl brought up about us playing it, of course, we jumped at the chance. So, but yeah, I, we, we want to play it again. Um, We'd love to do the the amphitheater out there because we played inside when we were there. Now, do you ever think about moving to that part of the world? I mean, would you head out there, or, or is it or is it a little too remote to have a getaway place? Mm-hmm. We've talked about buying if we if we get to the point a second house. I always like Big Bear, yeah, because um, I love the mountains. Um, of course, that's just the other side of Big Bear. But after spending time in Joshua Tree, we're both like I. I couldn't see living there year round, mm-hmm. um, but to have a getaway place out there, absolutely. Well, the band stayed when we played. I got a room at the Joshua Tree Inn. Simply, I wanted to get Graham's room, but it was booked, so I stayed in room number nine next door. Um, but and, but then the band Peter has a friend who owns a place out there, up on the mountainside, on a hillside. So that's where they stayed. Um, 
but I had my appointment to commune with the ghosts of so, Graham Parsons. Yeah. Yeah. Who who was famously? I mean, he uh, what he OD'd in that room, and then his friend tried to yeah. t- to give him a Viking funeral, essentially in Joshua Tree Park, and yeah, Phil, it, it, well, it didn't work out, right? Well, it's Phil Kaufman, mm-hmm. um, who who's still around. He's Amy Lou's manager. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he and Graham had been out there at Joshua Tree, and they had the discussion of death. Of course, they're in their twenties, you know. Yeah. In this, if something ever happens to me, man. Right here, man. You gotta, you gotta, I gotta, right here. This is the place, man. So, because Graham's family was wealthy, um, both of his parents had died young when he was very young. So, which was a reason for his um, issues. But uh, anyway, they were going to bring his body back. Um, and uh, Phil stole it at LAX. And uh, took it out to Joshua Tree to the Big Rock, where they were hanging out. And he tried to burn it. He did burn it partially. There were like thirty pounds left, which did get sent back to Louisiana and buried. But uh, yeah, he it, partially cremated him. <laughs> Am I remembering it right? Did Johnny Knoxville play him in the yeah, in Johnny the film? Played, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's With, right. Well. Uh, and uh, Michael Shannon, because that film should have been so much better than it was. I was so excited to see it. Yeah. Um, and I, I didn't think the film as a whole was very good. It didn't It didn't hang together properly. I mean, I, you know, nope. as someone who's been involved in that business for, for a long time, I, I mean, I've always wanted to talk to you about, like, the difference between success and failure on those uh, in those terms is, is it where 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 did they drop the ball on that one did they, did they drop the ball in the editing was it the, the 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 writing was it the direction I've only watched that film once because I was eager to see it and then I saw it and I and I was a little disappointed in it so I haven't revisited it but you know I remember Michael stealing all the scenes that he was in. Not trying to, because mm-hmm. Michael is an extraordinary actor. Michael Shannon. So, yeah. yeah. So, so much of it is that. But without going back and watching the film, it's always, man, it, they're always crapshoot. But I think it begins with the writing, and then it's the direction, and then it's the performances, and then it's the editing. And any one of those things can fuck it up. <laughs> yeah. And the, and, the, and, the, and the photography, you know. You got to create the moments first, then the capture the camera has to capture those moments, and then the editing has to put all those moments together in in a way that that they flow and tell a story. So, you I've know, been involved with stuff that I thought would would be man, this is going to be a great fucking movie. Yeah. Then eh, no, it's not. And then there's stuff like I honestly did not think Scream was anything special when we were doing it. Like, it's another scary movie. These are the slasher movies I grew up with. And I didn't get the whole satire part of it until I saw it all together. And I realized, like, oh, wow. Yeah, and that Um, was a difficult one to pull off because, you know, you're you're trying to do uh, satire and and horror, and they sometimes don't fit well with each other. So that was a very delicate dance. on that one. I can remember, I remember Wes saying when, before we started, because I'd worked with him on Vampire in Brooklyn, and Vampire in Brooklyn didn't work, and he knew it didn't work. It was too jokey, it was, but Wes said when we're doing Scream, we had a, a cast dinner, and he said, you know, we, we are making a satire of this genre, 
However, we must never fall in the sand trap of playing satire, of playing funny. If this movie is not scary, it will not work. That was what he he managed to pull off that that the tone that uh, you know it changed horror filmmaking. You know, West did it twice. He did it with Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm-hmm. And then he did it with Screen 13 years later. When I think of my favorite satires, they are not laughing at themselves. They're, they are taking themselves no. very seriously. If you're talking about Spinal Tap or anything else, if you, don't, if, if you don't believe that they believe, then you won't believe. That was kind of, the, and that was the key to, to something about Mary, was I just instinctively knew. If you goof this, you play this character farcically, you know, if you Joe Dirt it, it's not going to be funny. And the audience is going to hate you. <laughs> because you're making fun of of somebody with a handicap so i knew the only way to make it play was to play it straight and and ironically that's what made it funny i'm talking with w earl brown who pops up in everything that i'm watching sooner or later i was watching highwaymen yesterday on netflix and lo and behold there's w earl brown as uh one of the outlaws fathers and uh doing scenes with woody harrelson and kevin costner and giving as good as he gets, and what is the secret to keep working as you do? Because I've I've reached out to you on Facebook to say, hey, I saw you on Rectify, uh, now Highwaymen. Is it just having a great agent, or how are you, How do you keep showing up in these things? Talent and tenacity. That, the two T's. Yeah, I remember reading, reading and, and Mamet, one of his books, when he said, if you don't take your ball and go home, you will eventually get into the game. Um, so I, that was, I always took that to heart. I knew when I started that when I, when I decided that I was going to do this, cause I come from a working class background, mm-hmm. rural Kentucky. When I decided that this was what I was going to pursue, I knew what the odds of success were even back then. But I, my way of thinking was, well, there are people that are going to be hired to do those jobs. I'm just going to make sure I'm one of the guys that get hired. Among other things, you've played Meatloaf. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We, you mentioned there's something about Mary, episodes of NYPD Blue. I mean, going way back, the Untouchables TV series. But we're here to talk about Deadwood because the Deadwood movie, May 31st on HBO, has been something that people who are fans of the series have been looking forward to and never thought would arrive. I mean, I for me, Deadwood was appointment television. It, Sunday, if I wasn't parked in front of my TV at 9 p.m., I would break out into a cold sweat. And the show had three seasons on HBO. There was talk of um, what would happen next when HBO uh, essentially said, we're not paying for this anymore. I mean, I have always heard it was a, it was the matter of the cost. That, it, you know, Deadwood being a period piece was awfully expensive to make because of the costumes, because of the set. Does that still fly in the face of Game of Thrones, by the way, or is it? But does that no longer fly? Well, that's partially true. It's a little more complicated than that. But cost was a, one main concern. We were always over budget. The way we worked was absolutely unheard of in television. David would be writing on the fly, David Milch. And I, I worked on the writing staff of the show seasons two and three. When Ricky J left, I got Ricky's job in the writing trailer. And everybody contributed, uh, the whole staff, and, and, and everybody participated and wrote on everything. But David would, would rewrite you, and he would see things today that would inform what he was going to film next. And so he was writing on the fly. So no one could ever prepare. 
the way you normally do a shoot. You were on a veil. You were going to be needed the next day. That's one thing that made it so unique was there was an energy that permeated it because of that way of working. Well, again, we were on 10-day schedules. We never once made an episode in 10 days. I think our record was 19 days on one episode, almost twice as long. So I think part of that was an attempt at reining in costs. The HBO had made a billion dollars the year prior. and They loudly trumpeted. They were the first network to, to make that much money. Uh, well, then the next year, through you know any twist of fates, they started bleeding red ink from a variety of different circumstances that happened, not just with us. But the CEO was trying to, to put a bit in the mouth of a runaway horse. And I don't think he was ever 100% on our side because we were – that show was developed before he got there, before he was handed the, the reins. So, again, we, I don't think we were ever the favored child. When we didn't immediately become Sopranos huge, we were building that. We were headed in that direction. But I think that was – he was trying to cut the costs, and you know he, he tried to cut back the order, tried to cut our budgets in half, and gave David the option of a six-episode season – to tie up the story or two two hour movies to tie up the story. And as Dave said back then, that's not how we tell this story. And to change the way we tell this story is going to undercut it. So Dave made an all in poker move and you know, he got called on it and our show ended 13 years ago. No, our show didn't end. Our show stopped. Yeah. So, I think I put on your Facebook page the Calamity Jane line, which is, hey, we ain't done fucking dancing yet. <laughs> that was the last line of season three. I was, just talking I was just texting with her right before you called me. Isn't she doing a public appearance soon, uh, Robin? I, there's, uh, there was yeah. some, there's some publicity yeah. going on because, again, the film uh, debuts on, on Friday, May 31st on HBO. Uh, yeah, they're in New York. Matt Sollers-Zeitz is uh, hosting a, a Q&A and a screening, and she's attending that. I'm doing one in Deadwood, South Dakota. They have permission to simulcast it, and then they hire – I play with the Sacred Cowboys. We got back playing together again last fall, so we, we've become an active band again, and they booked us to come out and play. So while she's in New York, I'll be in Deadwood. And I saw you with the new red, white, and blue guitar, Buck. You, you named it after Buck Owens? <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> it's, it's nice. It well, looks the like guitar a nice... maker, I was playing. He invited me over to his house. It's from my hometown in Kentucky. Um, Murray, Kentucky? And, yeah. If memory and serves. And he yeah. invited me down to his workshop, which his, he's convert, his basement is his workshop. He's a dentist. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's a great guitar maker. Anyway, I, I was playing a, a couple of different instruments. And he had this strap that had a, a humbucker, a firebird humbucker on it at the bridge. I'm like, man, well, sounds pretty wicked. Yeah. He goes, oh, you like that? And I said, yeah. And, and then he had a thick neck on another one because I have big hands. Anyway, long story short, he made a guitar kind of, he goes, you want one? I'll, I'll build you one. So he uh, he called me. He says, I got, I'm, I'm building the guitar to your specs. What do you want it to look like? What color? And I said, make it look like Buck Owens, 1963. So it's the same age as me. So, yeah, it's painted to look like Buck's Telecasters. Oh, man, when I was a kid watching Hee Haw, that's all I wanted was one of those Harmony guitars, red, white, and blue guitars. Yeah. That was it. Yep. 
you know. Yep. Uh, and I still wish I had bought one back then because they're becoming hideously expensive now. Uh-huh. To go and get one. It's funny you said dentist because a good friend of mine who I've known since I was twelve, dentist, builds guitars as well in his spare time. Yeah. I, what is it about dentists and guitars? I, I might try I to get some know. grant money and figure this out. No, I, don't I don't get know. you know, and he's a but damn fine. Maybe that 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 precision and specificity that that requires you to work on teeth. Right, he transfers over to working on guitars. Yeah, because he does all of his own inlay and everything. You know, he's got the Dremel yep. tool, and, and he just does yep. he does all of his own stuff. And it's very fine, detail oriented stuff that I would make make me pull out my remaining air. So um, I know we're all over the map with this conversation, but I, I want to get back to David Milch for a minute because a lot of the stories that are appearing, whether it's the New Yorker or the New York Times, are, are talking about uh, what he's going through right now, his fight with Alzheimer's and you yeah. know, it very poignant because uh, one of the things that pulled me into Deadwood, and I think one of the things that when I would try to preach Deadwood to them, they would the language was what kept them away. They they couldn't they couldn't get into the Shakespearean cadences. They couldn't get into the depth of uh, the writing. It's it's what made me attracted to what's going on yeah. there. But in what what you've been saying on your Facebook page about David and the way you've been talking about him has really brought a tear to my eye because, you know, you, you begin to ponder uh, the loss of, of what's happening here and what it means to, to not have any more writing from him. Dave has been one of my life's great teachers. And I, I think I've had two of those in Hollywood. And as I mentioned earlier, Wes Craven. Wes was the first to kind of take me under wing. And then years later, I crossed paths with David. I've often theorized that I'm from Murray, Kentucky. David lays everything in his life, everything good, at the feet of Robert Penn Warren. He was Mr. Warren and Cleant Brooks' graduate assistant at Yale when they were putting together their textbooks on prose and poetry. So he worked hand-in-hand with them. Cleant Brooks is from Murray, Kentucky, and uh, Robert Penn Warren was from Guthrie, Kentucky, which is about 40 miles away. So I've often thought that when Dave recognized the dirt under my fingernails, that was probably a reason he pulled me a little closer to bosom. But he proved to be a great teacher, not just, you know, in in writing, but teaching who you are as a person. Dave, Dave was, I've met very few intellects at that level. The guy's a genius, an absolute genius. And coupled with that, he has this innate emotional intelligence that he's able to see people at their core. And then layered on top of that was a self-destructive streak a mile wide that he lived his life with. So very, very complicated man. It wasn't like every day was all hugs and butterfly kisses. And oh man, there were days of, of screaming at each other and fighting over stuff. And Dave has a very dark side um, that shadowed him his whole life. So... As a result of that, put all those things together, he created an absolutely fascinating story. And it was poetry. You mentioned Shakespeare. It's in meter. Very, very vulgar poetry. One of the things that stood out in all the reading I've been doing, uh, the articles that have been coming out lately, is his contention that plot comes out of character. Because when yeah. I when I decide to drop a TV show that I plunged into, I usually drop it because the characters are not 
doing things based on what you know of the character that seem honest. They're doing things uh-huh. to move you through a plot. And you begin to yeah. feel manipulated. And and you never felt manipulated by Deadwood. You felt like the things that are happening that we're seeing on screen is because the, this is the way these people would act. And mm-hmm. why does that message get lost so often? Why why is David one of the few well, people that that approached the work that way? He's a rarity. You know, plot was really a tertiary concern to him. The drama lay in in these discoveries of characters. When you see a facet to a character that you haven't seen before, that completely organically grows out of what we understand of them, but yet they behave in a way that that is, is what we didn't expect. So those scenes are full of stuff like that. These moments of grace from vicious people and these moments of cruelty from good loving people. So that was always at, uh, on the front burner for him. It's an easier way to tell a story. It's an easy way to hook an audience relying on, on a plot and cliffhangers and whatnot. And, and again, that, it's not like he completely discounted that because we'd talk about a story and he would say, where, where, I, where I think this is going to lead us down the road, what's going to happen is. So again, it's not like he didn't think about it at all. It just wasn't his primary concern. Whereas with the vast majority of, especially screenwriters, plot's the first thing. That's the initial thing upon which everything else is built. Not with Dave. I'm talking with W. Earl Brown, who uh, for three years played Dan Doherty, Al Smeringen's right-hand man, on Deadwood. Deadwood, the movie, is on HBO May 31st, Friday. We get to wrap up these storylines of people we hadn't spent time with for 10 years we have to remember once again. I I want to remind people that what David what David himself said about Deadwood, which uh, I believe it was when Clint Eastwood commented on Deadwood and said that he couldn't find his way into it, and David responded by saying, "It's not a western; it's an eastern. It's the complete opposite <laughs> of a western. It's not about rugged individualists. It's about yeah. people coming together huh. and to well, to create yeah. something." Well, that's what he said to me and. When um, first season, we're on set, and we're between setups, and uh, I'm in the scene, Doherty's in the scene, and I said something about our Western, and, and Dave said exactly, well, it's not a Western. Your archetypical American Western, of which I was never a fan of, were basically the lies we told ourselves to justify man's best destiny. It was about individualism and the great wide expanses. Our show's the exact opposite of that. It's about how we as humans tend to cleave together and form community. And I went, Dave, I'm wearing boots and a six-shooter. It's a Western, dude. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he he wanted to explore thematically how community forms. You know, his initial idea is he wanted to explore Rome in the time of the Caesars. The early Roman laws were the foundation for all Western laws that followed. They were the first culture that wrote down the laws. Like, if you steal his sheep, you then therefore owe him. So he went in and pitched that, and they already had the show Roman development. So they went back and they said, could you apply that theme to the Old West? Because we're thinking about doing a show with Wild Bill Hickok set in Deadwood, South Dakota. So that's when Dave did a little quick research, and he realized, you know, what a cauldron of violence and chaos that place was. And he knew it was a perfect setting 
to uh, to explore the themes he wanted to explore. Rome, which had John Milius involved in it, he was one of the creators of the show Rome, was mm-hmm. was a was a great HBO show. If you haven't seen Rome, you you should track it down and watch it. The performances, the acting, the writing. I thought it was a really well done show. So I did did David ever tell you what he thought of it after he saw it? Was he like, ah, they didn't screw it up that bad or I would have done it completely differently? What did he have an we, opinion? We never no, we no. never discussed it. Yeah. It, it's funny, you know, he and Milius I are kind of polar opposites as mm-hmm. far as writers. Yeah. You know, Milius never met the grand speech standing on the mountaintop pontificating that, you know, he didn't love. And he was excellent at doing that. Right. I can think of, you know, numerous speeches that he wrote in films that stand out. That's not Dave. Dave would want to set that up and then undercut it. <laughs> I can't imagine if they, well, we're putting him together with Milius is about like putting him together with Michael Mann on the ill-fated luck. Not a good combination. Let's talk about Dan Doherty for a minute because you now have to you you have to get into Dan Doherty, who's now a ten year older Dan Doherty than he was the last time we saw him, and you have to think about how does he change? How do his mannerisms change? How do his has his speech changed? Is he more refined? I mean, how, how did you approach this idea of a more mature Dan Doherty if he is more mature? Well, here's the easy part: I'm a decade older myself. Yeah. Well, physically, that certainly. <laughs> informs what you're going to do it, it, maybe in terms of your mobility it informs what you're going to do but what about the other changes well, that dan of, has gone through well the real doherty i i knew the history of him i uh with great help from jerry bryant the adams museum in deadwood um i i found a lot of old newspaper articles ledgers and logs so i knew the history of the real guy um and he actually became quite successful a businessman in his own right and I think David had already discovered that because if you, I'm rewatching the series now, and there's numerous little points when Swearingen will say to Dan, "Dan, when you have a place of your own, what you have to understand is that." So I think Dave was kind of planting that seed then. We don't delve too much into Dan's story in the movie. It's more focused on Bullock and Hurst and Swearingen's condition, but you see it in. He's still at the Bella Union or at the gym because the real Dan Doherty took over the Bella Union and then he built a brewery in Spearfish and he controlled all the beer contracts in Deadwood and he became quite wealthy in doing so. You see it in, in, in his manner of dress and his behaviors. He's somewhat more refined than he was way back when. Dare I ask if he has a family or would you prefer not to reveal that quite yet? For the sake of the film, no. The real Doherty did. Mm-hmm. He had a family when he first got there. The the real again, this is the what's the historical record. The real guy, his dad came there first, uh, and then Dan showed up about two months after. His dad had written in this letter about all the gold he was finding, and Doherty was married and he had kids, and he brought them out with him. His wife hated it, and she actually got robbed. The story in the paper was she had turned over her buckboard in a creek outside of town. And while indisposed, she was robbed at gunpoint. And that was when she left and she took the kids and went back east. At some point, his father left also, but he stayed there. And I don't think he ever went back until they took his body back in 1888 when he was murdered. We know that the Bullock and her situation is going to lead to conflict because it did the last time we saw Gerald McRaney show up as... uh, 
as Hearst. And so this time he comes back as a senator, does he not? And the the uh, yes. ter- North Dakota is on the verge of statehood, and that uh, sets into sets into motion the conflict between Bullock and Hearst. Well, the initial title was Deadwood Statehood when we shot it. That's what the script says. And then HBO changed it to Deadwood the movie. I guess statehood caused confusion to some people. Yeah, it does. It takes place on the day statehood was declared, the day right before and the day after, that little three, four-day span of time. When you see these reviews that are coming out now, the people who have gotten to see it because they're going to write about it, universally it's being praised, the final result. So was there any point where you thought that the ball might get dropped on this somehow, or or were you pretty sure that this was going to withhold the legacy of the TV show? Because... Things can go wrong, especially if they get out of your hands. I don't really want to discuss this topic until after people have seen the movie. Mm-hmm. There were changes made from the initial script in post-production. There were a few things changed that weren't there in the original script. Again, I don't want to go into that until people have seen the movie. Okay. But I think the changes work. There, there was a few things cut from that we shot that are not in the film. I hope at some point that HBO allows people to see those things. There, there are scenes that are gone. But other, I think the end result is quite moving. It's different. The storytelling is different. It is more plot-oriented than, than the show necessarily was. There is a plot driving through the film that Dave created, that Dave placed there. But I, I, I think it works. Now, was that a function of wanting to finish this story with these people? Because it's highly doubtful. Let, never say never. It's highly doubtful we're going to revisit these people again in this place. Probably not. But then I never thought this film would happen. You know, I know David. David's been writing on this sucker for almost four years that he first got the green light. Because I had a message. I know when it was. I was in New Mexico shooting the pilot for the TV show Preacher when I had a message from his wife that we may return to the thoroughfare. So that was in, gosh, 2015. Is it true what we read that that was really one of the logistical nightmares was all these people had gone on to do other things. I mean, Timothy Oliphant was doing Santa Clarita diet and Ian McShane is doing American gods and uh, the John Wick series. And the idea of like, how do we coordinate all these schedules? These people are off doing all these other things. Titus Welliver well, that, is doing Bosch, which I love. I'm a big fan of Bosch. Titus was he was the only one they weren't able to work in, but everybody else of the main characters are pretty much back. My favorite Silas Adams line is, "I have to take a shit." By the way, it's my one of my favorite <laughs> Silas Adams lines. Always liked well, that one. <laughs> we we had to work on we had an odd schedule. We started, we shot for a week, and then we were off for a week. And then we were a week, a week and a half, something like that. Then we resumed, and we were on six-day weeks shooting on weekends. And we were shooting on weekends because Molly was doing Lost in Space in Vancouver. So she literally, there was one Friday that she finished, she went and got on the airplane and flew right to the Deadwood set because she was like a walking zombie when she got there. I did that on our first day. I was shooting the pilot for Hulu. I was supposed to have been done uh, for two weeks before Deadwood started. And then the hurricane hit North Carolina. So we shuffled schedule. 
And then I finished the Hulu pilot at 3.30 in the morning, and I was on an, at the airport at 4.30 to get on a plane. I got here, dropped my bags, and went straight to the Deadwood set. Now, they had scheduled – it's a scene where Doherty's outside the door, knocking on the door. Well, they didn't think they would have me. So they scheduled it where you just see what's happening inside the door, and then they're going to shoot me, you know, answering my questions, knocking on the door at a later point in the schedule. Well, I'm thinking it was the first day of filming, the first day. Like, there is no way in hell cameras are going to roll on Deadwood. Dan Doherty's in the scene, and I ain't going to be there. So as soon as I got home, I dropped my bags, I got my car, and I sped up to Melody Ranch. And as fate would have it, I walked on set right at the point when Doherty knocks on the door. Paula and John and Brad, they, they were expecting, you know, the script supervisor to read my line. Because when they heard my voice, there was this shock. What? what? So, <laughs> but that's the way I felt. And everybody across the board felt that way. You know, we were going in on days we weren't scheduled to work. Just to be, it was that way on the show. It was that way when we made the show. Franklin and Jai said it when he joined us. He goes, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years. This is the first show I've ever been on that when people sign out, they stick around. So the movie had the same spirit. Franklin Ajay is in the film Convoy with Chris Christopherson, Uh along with Burt Young. That film and Car Wash, and then he shows up on Deadwood. It's just like that. That is one interesting CV. I mean, the amount of stuff that... (laughs) that's that's... he, He had essentially retired even back then. David knew him from years ago. I think they may have shared certain bad habits. Uh-huh. But they were friends from way back. And David is the one who created the role with him. And Well, the General Fields was a real guy. Right. He was a prominent guy in Deadwood's history. So I think Dave always had Franklin in mind for it. Franklin was semi-retired then. Well, he's completely retired now. He flew back. He lives in Australia. And, uh, and we were talking about it because I used to watch him on Make Me Laugh when I was a kid. And I, I did that series for Showtime called I'm Dying Up Here, which is based on the comedy store in the mid-70s. And there's a character that's pretty much based on Franklin and Jai. So, Frank, we were talking about it, and, and he, he was asking about – he had not seen Dying Up Here. And um, we were talking about the real story and what, what the show had dealt with. And, and I said, how did you – you know, do you do you perform anymore? No. I said, you the he goes, I, he goes, honestly, even when things were going great, I never enjoyed it. He goes, there'd be comics who could kill on a room, and they'd come off stage as high as a kite, like, I did so good. And he goes, me? I could kill in a room, and I'd come off the stage, and my first thought was, well, at least I did that up. <laughs> so he said, you know, I just got to a point with the Hollywood rat race, I just didn't enjoy it. And I just, and I never enjoyed it. I just felt compelled to do it. So... But still, Deadwood, like with all of us, stands out as the highlight of a career. And he wanted to be back and be a part of it, and he is. You know, well, he flew uh, halfway around the world to spend a couple of weeks with us. You men- mentioned Titus wasn't able to be part of Titus Welliver, and Ralph Richardson and Powers Booth are no longer with us, um, as mm-hmm. is Ricky Jay. You mentioned Ricky Jay earlier. Was there an attempt made to, to bring back mostly everybody else, or were there people who just weren't good yeah. characters who weren't going to fit in? To the story. Everybody's back. Everybody's back. Otherwise. The theater troupe has moved out of town. So the none of the theater troupe are there. Right. But all of the other characters, I mean, some are, you know, essentially cameos, but you see them, they're there. 
And and part of that was, man, it sounds trite to say it was a family, but damn, it wasn't. There was a connection between all of us. It was far, far more than a job. And I told my wife before we started production, I said, you know, I can't expect that spirit that imbued that place and time to be present anymore because that's a moment that's passed. It's 12 years, 12 years. So I can't expect, I can't go in with that expectation. The table read from the first moment we were all gathered there in one room and there were like 50 or 60 people in that room. But the first line spoken is Robin is calamity James. And the producer, you know, exterior, Deadwood, mountainside, blah, 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 blah. Well, her first line is a, a, I mean, it's been impressed. I'm not, 10 years past is the first thing that's spoken. And she and I, we're, we're still friends. We play poker together. And we're still buddies. And we were sitting across from one another in the table set up. And she looked up across the way at me, and we both got choked up. And I had to close my eyes to stop from crying. And I said, that the sound I remember was initially my brain could put it together what it was. I heard that sound, people pulling tissues out of boxes all around the room. And Robin had to go through every word of the sentence to get through it. And when she did, she took a breath. She became Calamity Jane for the rest of it. Because she is her her personality is the polar opposite of that character, and I told Carrie, my wife, I said it felt like the door opened and the spirit swept through the room. You felt it, and of course, Dave, you know, is at the head of the table, uh, and and health wise, it wasn't a good day for him when we had the reading, and many of us, myself included, I had not seen him in in um, a year and a half, almost two years at that point. So I hadn't seen the frailty because Dave was the penultimate alpha in every which way. Seeing him frail was a, a harsh adjustment. And he was sitting at the head of that table when Robin spoke those words. From that point forth, all the spirit came back to us full formed and it spent two months with us. There's a Ray Wiley Hubbard lyric and I've told Ray this. He's in Mother Hubbard's Blues. Ray says, every day that my gratitude is higher than my expectations, I have good days. Well, I had two months of very good days, one right after the other. It means a lot to us uh, who have been and are Deadwood fans for you to be documenting a lot of this on your Facebook page. You know, it feels like we can take that journey with you. And and I want to thank you for that, because not everybody does that, lets people in on things that way. And was that a conscious decision on your part or was it a need to document what's going on? It just started, the dispatches, dispatches from the thoroughfare started. First of all, I'm asked, I, I mean, for years I was asked about the return of Deadwood. And then when the rumor mill was starting, I was being asked again. Initially when I wrote it was more of, and I don't keep a diary mm-hmm. or, you know, I do journal about certain things in my life just to kind of sort through it in my own head and spirit. I'll get it down on paper. That was initially what that was. Then being asked about it, I, I thought, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make these public. I'll, I'll post these essays, just kind of chronicling the, the production process. Well, then I got, you know, from HBO, I got the letter of uh, 
public uh, social media policy. Basically, the subtext being take that shit down. So I think I because I what I did was I'd put up a photo. Jason Isbell came out and spent a few days with with us, and we played music. And I posted a photo of the set from that, and I think that's probably what triggered the. So I pulled all of them down, and then when the press started on Deadwood, when it started full formed, I put them back up. So they were on. Yeah, I think that was Facebook, and then I think I shared them on Instagram, and and I think there was, it was on all the social medias that I deal with, which is Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. They wanted to to use social media, but on their schedule. In other words, like you, yeah. you had jumped the yeah. gun, is what it they wanted to control it, right? the excitement of the first images coming out. I get it, and fan sites and all were picking up on the stuff that I posted. So I, I understand HBO wanting to. They want it to culminate in the excitement that we have right now, you know, leading up to this movie coming on. The reason we're talking right now, you know, and I've done a, a plethora of phoners. You know, and I'm way down the damn list. <laughs> Ian and Kim and th- those guys are on up the list from me. But, hell, I've done probably a dozen phoners that they put together and asked me to do. Yeah. No, I reached so, out to you myself because we, we sort of have a connection. Well, we, we've I known know each other you. for a while. Yeah. Last time I saw you was uh, Outlaw Country Cruise number three. I didn't make it on the number four. May not be there on number five. Who knows? But maybe I'll go every three years. Um, well, we missed you. Yeah. Listen, well, I, I missed you. I missed you guys too. Um, because the the third one was a blast. It was it was just mm-hmm. an absolute blast from beginning to end. Even you know leaving and coming back to New Orleans was fantastic. So. And I may stow away on this next one. Who knows? But you guys did a tribute on the last one, too. Uh, the one I saw was the Tom Petty tribute. What was the one you did yeah. on the on the last boat? Uh, Bobby Bear. Bobby Bear. Bobby That's right. Bear. Yeah. yeah. And Bobby Bear Jr. was there, too, wasn't he? Wasn't they both there? Yep. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. You got well, all the Bobby's bears. brother, we, we had a gathering afterwards up mm. in the suite. And Bobby's brother came up because Bobby wasn't feeling well, so he had to go mm. to bed. And his brother kept on. He was, I think, outside of his induction in the Country Music Hall of Fame, I've never seen my brother so affected by something as he was by tonight. That's the sort of magic thing on the trip. It's funny you mentioned that. I just read this morning, the Bitter Southerner just published an article on the Outlaw Country Cruise. They had writers that were there on the boat, and they wrote a long essay about their time on the boat and mentioned the Bear Tribune. Yeah, well, Um, shout out to Jeremy Tepper, who, who I've known 33 years now and who is the motivating force behind that thing because oh, yeah. no one has a bad time on, on board the Outlaw Country Cruise, and lar- largely it's, it's down it's down to him. So It sells out in just a few days' time. It was already sold out. I'm sure you'll be on board, and hopefully there'll be more music from you as well. Any chance you'll you know try to bring the Sacred Cowboys with you, or uh, will you continue to do the MC well, thing? Where... I'd love to. There are plans afoot for stuff on the boat this year that haven't been announced, so I'm going to be involved with those. Uh, yeah, I'd love to have the band on board, but you know, we just started back in October playing together again. Yeah. It had been a decade. I'm the weak link in the whole band musically. I can sing better than everybody else, and I play well enough that I can write with you know on the instrument that I can write songs. But there's a, there's a few guys in my band that are extraordinary players, and it just it just kind of organically happened that we became a band to begin with. And we ended up, we played the uh, Stagecoach Festival in 09, and we played, we were on the Palomino stage. And to the best of my memory, 
the band before I was, none of us had ever heard of. I don't know whatever happened to the Zach Brown band. <laughs> but they, they were on, they were on at like one thirty, and then we played, I think at three and then Lynn Anderson was after us. And so we like, it was a band and we were active. And after stagecoach, we were kind of at the point of, okay, it's, we, we need to get in the van and, you know, see the country. I couldn't do that. I could not afford to do that. And, I was busy. I had a film that was in, this sounds so, you know, I had a film that was in production, so mm. I couldn't tour with my band. But there was, there was another facet to it of, it was promoted as the guy from Deadwood. And I was, you know, Deadwood was over at that point by three years. And I was growing uncomfortable with that. I'd finally gotten to that point of thinking, Deadwood's over. It will never happen. We'll never make a movie. It's over. Stop mm. beating a dead horse. And so promotion for the band that way rubbed me the wrong way. And I, I, I wasn't comfortable. I, I, said, I told the guys, I said, look, I'll hitch this band to, to any wagon that I'm on. But Deadwood is a wagon. The horse is dead. The horse is buried. Yeah. And so, you know, ironically, we, we all still stayed in touch. We'd get together and play in, in small groups. But we'd never been in the same room together until last fall, right about the time that the Deadwood movie was greenlit, that the band started again. So that's a very long answer to say, yeah, I'd love to have those guys on that cruise at some point. It's not going to be this year, maybe someplace down the line. We continue to play here because, every, you know, top to bottom, every single guy in it can play with anybody. Hopefully we'll see what happens. And if you get out to the East Coast... Let me know. I, I'll know via I your will. Facebook page. Hopefully, you'll you'll say something on a Facebook page. But you're writing today. I'm going to let you get back to your writing. I appreciate you spending right. some time with me. What else do we want people to know about Deadwood the movie beyond the fact that William Sanderson has a book out? Apparently, so yeah. Well, <laughs> have you read the, Have you read his book, or you're just posing in pictures? Yeah, I read with it. it. Okay, what did you think? Yeah, man, I, I accidentally ordered two copies. I'd forgotten <laughs> that I pre-ordered it. Oh, I had, I had a freaky day. Like, I think it was Thursday that Formate published because Billy had posted on his social media his book was out. And I thought, oh, man, I got to get that. It's about 11 o'clock. I couldn't go. I was writing then, too. I'm like, I'm not going to go out to the bookstore. I'm, I'm going to order it. So I Amazon order it. And at about 1 o'clock, I get a delivery. And I thought, oh, my wife, she orders there's these disposable coffee pods or some makeup she gets there. So I get them like, oh, this feels like a book. It's Billy's book. And I'm like freaked out. Like, what are their drones? I just ordered this thing two hours ago. That is efficient. Well, then I, I then the next day I got another copy, and I'm like, huh? And then I remembered I'd pre-ordered it. So, um, so I have two copies of Billy's book, and uh, it's quite enjoyable. You know, it's it's Billy telling stories about uh, life, his life as an actor. Now you and I talked. Yes, you, you and I talked about Coal Miner's daughter years ago. I remember that conversation because yeah. that to me was that was the first time I saw William Sanderson. I hadn't seen him before that, yeah. but what he did in that film made me a fan for life. I'll watch anything that he's in. His job as E.B. Farnham is not an easy one because he's not a likable character <laughs> necessarily. But he is. But as he's you mentioned, repulsive. yes, he's a repulsive reptilian <laughs> character, but you like him. <laughs> you like him anyway. The cast alone is uh, reason enough 
to uh, check in with Deadwood the movie on Friday, May 31st on HBO. And if you're not a Deadwood fan currently, if you missed Deadwood when it ran between uh, 2004 and 2006, this is a reason to go back and binge before Friday because that's what I've been doing. I've been binging two shows. You might find this interesting because I think you have a connection to Ann Biderman. I've been binging Southland now that it's on Hulu and all the curses are not being Mm -hmm. bleeped. And I'm binging Deadwood at the same time. So every night I'll watch a Southland and I'll watch a Deadwood. I'm doing Deadwood in The Sopranos. What was the decision yep. to get back into The Sopranos? Because of the prequel that's the, the, coming the out? Seppenwall and Sykes' book, The Soprano Files, I think it's called, which is an in-depth episode-by-episode uh, episode analysis of the show. Matt's actually writing one on Deadwood. He's the one that's hosting the thing with Robin Weigert in New York on the, um, Friday night. But yeah, it was their book. I'd been wanting to kind of revisit it anyway, so I'm going slowly through it. My wife and I are deadwooding three episodes a night when she gets home from work. Yeah, I'm doing the same. I'm trying to get in like one, uh, like I said, one Southland and one uh, Deadwood. I, you know, I miss Southland too. I thought that was another show that I could have done with more seasons of. I just thought it was a really well done production and it shares some dna with deadwood as far as i'm concerned it's it's got kind of a downbeat view of human nature but then it finds these grace notes in humanity between people i mean overall it's a pretty dark vision southland and deadwood but as you mentioned earlier then the humanity the moments of humanity that happen between people are what keep you keep you rooting for people because otherwise you'd be like i don't care if this place burns down but you know mm-hmm. these these are people that are there for each other and and that's the message we can carry away from the experience of of deadwood so again w earl brown has been my guest earl i appreciate you spending time with me i really do and all uh, right man yeah we'll cross paths again sometime down the road all right okay all right talk to you later take care Thanks again to W. Earl Brown for joining me. You could see him in just a few hours on HBO as Deadwood, the movie, debuts. Something we've been waiting for for a very long time. And uh, I'll be back again next Friday with a new aerial view every Friday, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, and then replays 6 p.m. on Tuesday here on the HoundNYC.com. Don't forget a new Hound Howl. On Sunday at 3 p.m., 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern, and then crashing a party right after with Mark and Miriam, the doo-wop chop shop of the air from 5 to 7 p.m. You can find me at facebook.com slash call aerial view. And if you ever want to call this program, our number is in Palm Springs, as you heard Earl mention, 760-422-5528. That's 760 760- I call AV. And now uh, to wrap things up, a little bit of a Deadwood montage for you. Don't call me your fucking friend. My God, act civilized even if you ain't. Thank you very much. And probably that's all either of us needs to say on that subject ever again. It's common fucking courtesy. This whole place smells like shit. It's all fucking amalgamation and capital, ain't it? Better suited than us in every fucking aspect of the task. And don't mind standing in filth. What's that, Lord? <gasps> What's you, Lord? Dirty-minded cocksucker. Says he found a story like that himself. Sometimes I hear you speaking in here when I know there's nobody in here but you. You have not yet reached the age, have you, where you move to 
utterance of thoughts properly kept silent. Been known to mutter. Not the odd mutter. Habitual fucking vocalizing of thoughts best kept to yourself. Don't you put a fucking clock on this. Look at these cocksuckers. <sighs> cocksuckers think they can take away everything. We all have bloody thoughts. You know prospecting, Mr. Swearingen. Fucking nothing, Evan. And the securing of the color once found. Not a fucking thing. All I really care about. I fucking hope so. I'd hate to think you're this good at something that's only a fucking hobby. Jesus Christ, you're bad with your hand. What'd she say to you when you saw it? She said it pushed you where you grabbed it. That has a ring of fucking truth. I don't like funerals. I do, I do, I can't get to enough of them. Why don't you learn to talk American? Save us all a lot of fucking trouble. Truth is, my questions is answered 90%. And as for the rest, let me get good and fucking loaded and let the devil take the hindmost. I'll tell you what, I hope you get what's coming to you and I hope it's sooner rather than later. I hope they sort you out and I get to see it. I hope you're gunshot and die slow. She kills that fucking cocksucker. I'm going to be working for the rest of my life. (laughs) (laughs) And thus, uh, you encounter one of our wonderful, meaningless American traditions, uh, the tall tale conversation and, and, and tales and good nature. You're fucking cheating me. No charge for the pussy. And fucked his horse. But if I... If thou art a transgressor of the law, thy circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Therefore, if uh, thy uncircumcision uh, keeps the the righteousness of the law, shall not his uh, uncircumcision be count for circumcision? Yea, the uncircumcision that is by nature fulfilling his law shall judge thee who by by letter and uh, circumcision transgresses the law. I won't fuck Chinese. I got a mother living yet. See the jealous type? I like you. Show me where the cocksucker's at. (laughs) Corruption won't never breathe stinky on my bicycle. We'll open your mouth and say something we can't fucking understand. I am a sinner who does not expect forgiveness. But I am not a government official. Cocksucker. Cocksucker. Cocksucker! 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 San Francisco cocksucker! What the fuck does that fucking mean? May we please have a conversation as fucking adults? As much as you can, please minimize your obscenities. People angry at their difficulties often act like fucking idiots. I feel you breathing on my neck. Should I exhale out my ass? We are dwarfs in the company of a giant. I don't fucking know! I'd like the ball scores a little more fucking prompt. I guess we could give it a fucking whirl. The rigor in New York City. Whatever the fuck that means. This conversation were best had elsewhere. But not postponed. Not postponed, no. If I were sheriff, I'd have you hanged. You're killed, sir? Who? The animal. Oh, no, fuck, no. I'm a fucking terrible shot. Work better closer in. God, burn my fucking snatch! No grabbing at the cunt? Is that what she said to you? No. I mean, she told you, 
right? And I grabbed her. Did, did, did she have a, an attitude about it? She didn't have an attitude. She just said her pussy hurt. Would we have even more fun naked? Glorified fucking monkey. I sorted him out proper. Gouged out the both of his fucking eyes. Move along. I'm tired of listening to you. You're tired of listening? Get the fuck out of here. All right, I hear you, Wild Bill. You don't need to insult me twice. He's encumbered every fucking breath I've ever fucking taken. Drawn to the music, the piano uh, relieves my head. Yeah, listen to a piano where you don't make a fucking ass out of yourself, huh? Do you know where I might find one? No! Oh, dear. But I did not fuck the horse. The French can stay the fuck out of it. <laughs> Cocksucker upstairs. I've got pride if you fucking don't. You're opening at 8 o'clock, huh? 8 o'clock! Hey, we ain't done fucking dancing! <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.